and welcome to another exciting episode of Battle of the Atom. This are your weekly X-Men podcast where you rank every story from A to Z. Arr, I be Adam. I be your wee Captain Zuck. And Adam, how long will we be doing these pirate voices today? I think we could keep it up all episode. Last time we did that, we got several bad iTunes reviews <laughs> because they said we had too many voice filters and... No one is buying the bit that we are scrolls. There's no filter here. It's just two pirates discussing pirates on the pirate podcast. Okay, but in reality, I don't have a glass of water with me, and I'm already I've already hurt my throat by doing the pirate voices for that. You mean a bottle of rum? <laughs> I got, got I, rum rum's in the pantry. Um, I keep bourbon in here. That's close. I mean, they're just brown. Well, they're close uh, in color. Yeah, so we're not going to do pirate voices all episode. We got to stop. We, we got to stop. We are, we are talking about pirates this week. Yeah, we are, Adam. Uh, we're talking about pirates because uh, gentleman Chris Manning said, folks, I'd like you to talk about pirates th- yeah. this week. Uh, ask that on Patreon. Uh, you know how the X-Men have a deep relationship with pirates. Sure, pop up quite a few. We've covered a couple of pirate stories here on the show before. You know, and, uh, it's weird that Adam, you and I didn't immediately jump to, well, we should do some Starjammer stories. We didn't <laughs> well, even think of that. We did have a Starjammers episode not too long ago. So I think that might have been coming back to the well. I like what we've come up with for this episode. And uh, I like that we came up with it. Yes. It's uh, an interesting mix of new, old, and in-between. <laughs> yeah, and we got this new, old, and in-between again. Thanks to Chris Manning. Chris went over to patreon.com slash comicsxf, dug deep into the hearts and pocketbooks, tossed a couple coins into our coffers, said folks would love you to talk about Marauders uh, mm. from the Dawn of X. And if you want to be like Chris, you can go over to patreon.com slash comicsxf. It supports everything we do on comicsxf. It's a good website. I don't know if people know that, but they should go and uh, check it out. It's good stuff. Great website. Daddy made you so much content there, <laughs> and you can you can enjoy that content to your heart's content. Uh, while we are content with the content that uh, Jerry Duggan is giving us in Marauders 1 through 12 and also 16. Oh, my goodness. So we- uh, <laughs> this is... What was the what was the other thing we read like over a year of? Oh, that was Mutant X. That was Mutant you X. That? That yeah, this is yes. a much more enjoyable experience. But I I was still like, are we really gonna read thirteen issues of Marauders? But gotta say, very glad I did. Here's the thing we we thought about doing just the first uh first six issues uh that form. This is gonna have full spoilers for the book Marauders where Kitty Pride has a pirate ship mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, where Kitty Pride dies halfway through and then COVID happens. And then everyone's like, man, Kitty Pride's been dead for a really long time. And they're like, no, she hasn't. There's, there's not been a lot of comic books that have come out, folks. It's <laughs> fine. <laughs> I was uh, pleasantly surprised going back and reading this as a whole, because um, one of the things that I was not doing and i'm sure a lot of other readers weren't as well is if you were reading all of the books you were probably reading them as they came out in the way they were published in the order they were published and it is interesting to go back and read just one of the titles and read them subsequently over the course of the first year because i was really shocked at just how um how streamlined it was You know, Jerry clearly has the entire thing mapped out. And the only thing that really gets in the way of the last issue, which is 16, is that Ten of Swords just happened to fall um, towards the end of that. And if you if you just skipped Ten of Swords, 
You would also just know, hey, in between these two issues, there was a sword fight. <laughs> right. You know, hey, there was some, there's like a little blurb about there being some other world nonsense that's delayed their revenge plot. But, um, you know, there are a lot of strands going through this. And uh, this book, of course, capitalizes on the basic premise of X-Men pirate book. Yeah. Uh, so the way I understand it, and I do not know where I heard this. It could have been when Jerry was on the podcast in the lost episode mm. is that Jerry had a couple ideas. He had a hellfire club idea that he wanted to do. And then he also had a pirate idea in his head and he smashed those two together. And I think in this arc, it mostly works because the Hellfire Club is so central to this. Uh, this is th this is uh, where Kitty Pride can't walk through the gates. She doesn't know why. Is that resolved yet? No. Have no. they forgotten about it? No, people. It's just, it's just like a plot that it it's going to come back at some point. I Jerry's writing X Men. It it'll happen. I don't know what to tell you. Be patient. Sometimes you don't get all the answers you want right away. Yeah. Um, I assume that eventually we will get an explanation for that, but for right now I'm fine with not knowing. And it does mean that Kitty pride has to get around on a boat. <laughs> well, and that's, that's why, uh, we get the premise to begin with. And the other, uh, thing that you mentioned is that this is also a book about formation of the new hellfire club. So Emma is a huge star, kind of the, the Charlie to the angels here and is assigning, um, a kind of a new look and personality to Kate. Who's no longer known as Kitty anymore. And Kate, well, th that's not the right thing. She's not assigning it, but she's giving, Kate, an she, opportunity to yes. grow into a new individual that is uh, more of a, a grown up. And well, if um, you if you look at if you look at the leaders of Krakoa, Magneto has seen Kate as a child. Like, right? It's it is nothing against Magneto. He has just literally been like, no, this he he imprinted on her the moment he saw her, and he's like, oh, this is a child, and yeah. I must protect her with my life. Charles mm -hmm. Xavier sees everyone as a child. Right. All the other X-Men know Kate as their their kid friend that hangs out with them. <laughs> right. Emma, while she said, yeah, I was your teacher. I, I could have been your teacher once. Emma's like, but you're grown. I'll let you be grown. And gives her an opportunity to be the Red Queen of the Hellfire Club, which also gives Emma the opportunity to uh, ruin Sebastian Shaw. And... <laughs> <laughs> Emma's mad that Sebastian Shaw came back to life after she just murdered him <laughs> or yeah. not come back to life, but back to it's left unrevealed as she actually did murder on him, but bring, bringing him back into the, to an active role. Yeah. Because uh, Sebastian has been put in charge of the, the, the other premise behind the, the ships that are out there, one of which is not a ship and we'll talk about that, uh, is that they are in charge of distributing the life-saving Krakoan medicines that are not being shipped via X-Core, right? Yeah. It's, so It's the Hellfire Trading Company is essentially running the black market. Well, there's two sides of it, right? There's right. sort of like the humanitarian side, which is Kitty's side. And then there's also, like you said, the black market side, which is being run by Sebastian Shaw. And Shaw, you know, obviously wants to control the whole shebang so that he has more power. And Emma is always several steps ahead of him until there is a plot that Sebastian does succeed in killing Kate Pride. And what looks like to be Lockheed as well. And that is left kind of dangling for a while. Um, for, for a few, for a few issues, I think by eight, everyone knows what's going on, but again, man, the pandemic changes how I remember these reading these books mm -hmm. versus in reality, how they were supposed to come out. Dang it. Yeah. And, and that's, that's why it's really fun going back and reading these right one after another, because it's a pretty swift moving story. Um, there's no delay. There's no, you know, 
back there there's no like uh pedaling in place it's it's just moving so it it's moving and i think a lot of what these 16 issues are doing it really is establishing a new status quo it is mm-hmm. i'm saying this and i'm just making the comparison in terms of what they do not in the overall quality it's very similar to what house of x was doing in saying this is what everyone's role is going to be now. It establishes, hey, we've got, this is what Madripoor is going to be up to. This is what, uh, this is going to be our antagonists against mutants. These are the people who are going to be pushing against uh, the Marauders and things like that. It's establishing what Kate's up to. Uh, it's giving Storm somewhere to be while she finishes up Tana Hesse Coates' run on Black Panther. Uh, <laughs> it gives Emma her status quo and really cements like, since she's not part of Charles and Moira and Magneto's machinations, what's Emma up to for Krakoa? And it gives her a very good answer for it. It does a lot with a lot of characters. It seeds a lot of plots that some of which came to fruition, some of which just really don't. There's something going on with both Sebastian or Shinobi Shaw and Christian Frost that we have never, and I doubt ever will get resolution on Mm -hmm. because it's like, Okay, well, this was this was a subplot that was supposed to support something else, but it doesn't matter anymore. We gotta we gotta re- redo some things. Um, well, to your point, there's so much world building here. Um, we're seeing corners of Krakoa that we never saw in um House of X and Powers of Ten. So we're getting introduced to places like the Hellfire Bay. We're getting introduced to these new forms of transportation and what it means, you know, for things to grow on trees and what have you. But like you said, we're also learning about adversaries. We're learning about Russia. We're learning about Madripoor. We're learning about the uh, ex Hellfire Club kids who have now turned into what is it, Homanes Verendi, um, which you know, like is an ongoing concern for a while. We, we get the, what is it? The cult of X, which is the, the humans that got messed up when Charles Xavier announced, uh, into everybody's skulls. They are, they are, wor- yeah, they're treating mu- mutants as gods. It turns out that they are being led by strife. We find out in cable later, man, I forgot. I had forgotten until this exact moment, how that plot resolved. Well, that was wild. That was a weird one. Yeah. But there is so much going on. Um, the data pages are very intelligently uh, given to a CIA undercover operative at the X desk who we don't get introduced to until what? Issue eight or nine, some somewhere around there. But but in I mean, the actual human being, like I don't think is on panel until she meets yeah, Storm eight on or nine. subway. Yeah. yeah, it's a that's while. When, that's when we meet Dolores. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she starts showing up other places. And then you remember in other books, wait a minute, the CIA is not uh, always above board, even the nice people in it. <laughs> so, they are still the CIA. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the main draw here is the, the Kate Pride stuff, the Emma stuff, um, and the drama. They are, Kate and Emma are are the core of this book and everyone else is secondary to them. Bishop, Iceman, Storm, doesn't matter. They're, yeah. They are, I, they are supporting. When Kate is not on page, everyone is asking, what's Kate up to? Where's Kate at? Right. Uh, what Which is I, fun. She's the star of the book. I You're allowed do, to have a central character. I do really appreciate the new take on Pyro here. I love what's going on with Bishop as sort of this, you know, spy who's, who's going undercover and, and, finding out intel on things. It's great to use these characters in this way. And it's a very straightforward, um, you know, fun ride, especially when we get this great payoff at the very end um, of Kate, not only the funeral of Kate pride, but the resurrection, um, you know, when, when they finally figure out how to bring her back because she, she, has to phase through the egg unlike breaking through the egg like her uh, colleagues and then the revenge against sebastian shaw in the in the 16th issue it's great uh it's obviously a story that's saying hey we're gonna take the first year of this book and have a rebirth for kate pride we're going to grow age her up a little bit grow her into a new character for a new era that still feels like a 
a good path for her. You know, people are like, oh, she's so violent. Her best friend was Wolverine. It's Storm has a billion knives on her at all time. She's doing that specifically because earlier in the book, someone mentions how, yeah, Kate, she's not, she's not going to, Kitty, she's not going to like give you an extra punch if you're down. This is her very textually pushing against everyone else's perceptions of her, mm-hmm. which comes down in that, in issue 12, where she, you know, is rebirthed. She fully embraces, you know, visually, specifically her Jewish identity. Yep. You know, she comes out and, you know, kisses a lady, yep. which is great. Mm-hmm. I remember when that happened, everyone was really excited. And uh, the leadership of Marvel is absolute cowards, absolute bone cowards at Marvel and Disney for not doing anything else with that. You idiots and fools. It's true. But it is really refreshing to have Kate Pride finally canonically uh, gay by you know, just embracing being her. Embracing who she is. Yeah. Um, and so I think another thing that's an asset to this book, we have not mentioned the art, but uh, the book not starts yet. with, uh, first of all, a series of absolutely ravishing Russell, Russell Dodderman covers mm-hmm. um, throughout. We get uh, Matteo Loli on uh, most of the book, but towards the, the latter half, uh, Stefano Caselli, doing uh, some fantastic work. And uh, I think it helps well, to. We I... also, we also have uh Michelle Bandini mm-hmm. in there on issue three. Uh, we've got Lucas Wernreck. Yes. Uh, Wernick in there as well. A little bit. Uh, Mario del Penenio uh, does a bit, uh, but I mean, like, here's the thing. I really like Castilli's stuff. I am not a huge fan of Loli. Oh, okay. I just I like Loli's stuff quite a bit. But um, it's it's an interesting style for this book that is so character driven, you know, it's so this is going to come out and it's going to feel like I a backhanded compliment and I don't want it to feel that way. But with the art team and the and just Jerry Duggan style, this feels like the most conventional superhero conventional Marvel book Mm. that the line had at the time. It was X-Men doing X-Men things also on a pirate ship now and with closer to house style art than not. That's fair. Um, But I think it's necessary, you know, when I'm I'm glad a book like this exists. I don't disagree. I, I feel like, you know, especially at the same time when Hickman was kind of doing these episodic one shot issues of X-Men that are darting around, it it was really good idea to have somebody telling a consistent narrative about some of the most important characters on the cast. Um, and I, I think the art's fantastic. Um, I think it's really more of a matter of taste. The colors are fantastic. And, uh, uh, I Okay, the colors, I actually, I think a lot of my issue with Loli's stuff early on is Frederico Blee, who's a colorist I do not care for. Okay. Okay. I mean, I just, I just is, don't, I just don't like Blee's color palette. Yeah. I, the book could be, how do I put this? Maybe a little bit bit more of contrasty like it it does have a very bright and sunny feel to to the book which is interesting you know i don't think i don't think this this run of marauders has a distinct visual identity in the way that a book like like x-force of this era the josh kassara art felt different Hmm. uh like phil noto's stuff on cable felt very you know specific it had a it had a look a feel it knew what it was where I feel like Marauders felt like, Hey, here's some Marvel guys that we need to keep, give them a gig. And I think, I think they've, they gave Marauders a visual identity when they relaunched the book with Steve Orlando. Uh, is it the right visual identity for the story Steve Orlando's talking about? Well, we'll figure that out when we rank that story. But I, I think like these are, these are all house Marvel guys, in my opinion. Hmm. I, I see where you're coming from. I also think you're underselling the talent. You know, it's, it's, I the might same, be. it's the same thing with Marcus toe on Excalibur. I think toe is outstanding at times and people 
don't give Toe the, the credit that he deserves for what it is he's doing. I agree. Toe has, Are Toe, we leaning Toe has towards... a little bit tighter resolution for me. Like, we're not talking about Excalibur right now. No, but I'm I'm trying to. I understand. What I know you're what saying. you're doing. Not, I'm telling myself not, that so I don't argue with you. My yeah, friend. not each of the books are going to have this, you know, very stark visual identity. And uh, I agree. Maybe this one is is a little bit closer to to just general house style. But uh, I think it works for the story that it's trying to tell. And we've been talking about this for almost half an hour, so I think we probably like it why don't we try I like and... oh that's the thing i really do like this story it's it is a this is where duggan's best at is a fun superhero story he is mm-hmm. not going to reinvent marvel comics jerry if you're listening i'm sorry i don't think you want to reinvent marvel comics jerry is going to do a fun marvel comic book superhero story and that's what marauders is i like it because i have a podcast that I do with you, my friend, all about <laughs> fun Marvel superhero comics. Uh, yeah, this is great. I do think uh, just to give uh, Jerry some bigger and bolder. I mean, when you talk about planet size and now X-Men 15, he's starting to dabble in some of this uh, Hickman sci-fi weirdness. And I'm, Good. I'm enjoying where that's going. So You know uh, I love that. Yes. You know I love that sci-fi weirdness. If the lost episode wasn't lost, people would know how much I enjoyed Planet Size X-Men yeah. because we recorded it the day before it was released and we got to talk to Jerry about it. <laughs> and I wish that episode existed in anywhere except for the ether. Well, I am hoping that as this episode is coming out um, the Monday after I was at New York Comic Con that I have caught up with Jerry. Um, so <laughs> we'll we'll see. But uh, Zach, back to the list. Tell me about this list. So the list is the list is a wild thing, Adam. You wouldn't believe it, but there are 693 stories on it. In this list, it's on a road. It's on a road to 700, my Good man. Lord. It's ranked from best to worst, uh, looking at the best and worst X-Men stories of all time with the House of X powers of 10 at number one, uh, the number 100th being X-Men Alpha Flight, number 200 being X-Force 1 to 2, a force to be reckoned with. Number 300 on our list is Dad from Uncanny X-Men 391. Number 400 on this list is Spider-Man versus Wolverine, the story where Spider-Man kills a dude. Uh, number 500 on this list is the Muir Island saga. Spider-Man feels really bad about it, and he does kill a woman. Uh, number 600 on this list is Wolverine Origins, 37 through 40, Romulus. Uh, and then the Draco's at the bottom. All right. I think we are probably in the top 150. Let's see. What's it? One, I, I know we're above 200. Yeah. 150 we're above is 200. the fourth issue of Generation X Between the Cracks. Oh, the sad Christmas issue? Yeah. Yeah, this is probably better than that. Yeah. Because uh, it's, and that's in good company because at 153, it's like all new Wolverine Four Sisters, which mm-hmm. I think is our highest all new Wolverine. Yes, I think so. We um, are in the right spot of this list. Uh, Well, let's, let's take a look up the list just a little bit. And um, I think this is not as good as Hickman's giant size X-Men at 127 as a whole. I disagree 100%. I really? Think, yes. And here's why. Um, as, as I said on that episode, we definitely probably put giant size too high um, because what Hickman was doing there was very minimal. It was artist showcase and it was it beautiful, was. Um, but it was also a lot of fluff and there was not a lot of content there. I think what Duggan is doing here in terms of the world building and the character building is a lot stronger than what was going on in giant size X-Men. Which is of course above Inferno, the X-Men and X-Factor portion at 130. I, I, yeah, it is. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to say, I'm going to say this, this is not better than ultimate X-Men one through six, the tomorrow people. Um, I, I can deal with that. Yeah, that's fine. Um, Cause it's, uh, it's, I think 121. Uh, Wells Fallen Rise of the New Mutants is probably better than this. Um, I like that limbo arc of Bendis Uncanny better. <laughs> yeah, I do too. All Blood right. Hungry is probably better. No, you think? Do you think this is better than Blood Hungry? 
Well, I mean, let's let's Blood think Hunger's about got it. that same Keith art, my man. I know, but uh, Zach, you're you're underselling this. This is this is 13 issues of content with uh, with like all of the ground rules for what Hellfire is about, and all of the the back deals and everything. There's a freaking UFO that disguises itself as a submarine. I mean, there's a mask on a, a golf course because there's retired marauders. We didn't even talk about Callisto. I mean, there's a lot going on here. And I feel like we're underselling this a little bit. And it's listen, I love Sam Keith, but this is better than Peter David writing about cyber. <laughs> okay, listen, that is fair. That is yeah. fair. Um, okay, that's fine. Let's break it to 124. I think that's a fine spot. I don't want to I think there's people who could argue about this ri- list having some recency bias, and they're wrong. Um Well, I, I think when we think about this arrow, we need to um be able to admit that there is, I keep using the word consistency, but when was the last time there was these long stretches of just narrative coherence, you know, okay. it's been a long time since everybody was on the same page in the same room talking about the same location and everybody being in dialogue as to what's happening. And I'm looking, I'm looking up this list, Adam. Yeah. And you're you're actually talking me into some things. Okay. I think my ceiling does need to be, you know, at 102, we have the Hickman New Mutants, and I think that's better. I would agree. I think at 104, we have X-Men Black, Emma Frost, which I think is better. Mm-hmm. At 112, we have Empire X-Men, which is really fun, but I know in my soul that Marauders was better than Empire X-Men. <laughs> okay. All right. So I we're do talking- know that's at 112. I know that's true. You know I love Executioner's Song at 109. 105 is the Terra Verde arc of X-Force. Mm-hmm. Which I think, for me, definitely kind of wins because it has Josh Kassara drawing weird Annihilation stuff. I would agree. Yeah. And listen, bud, I just finished Born yesterday, and I'm a good third of the way into The Strange Bird uh, oh. today. So you know I'm I'm <laughs> I am deep in my Vandermeer Vandermeer kick. <laughs> that right stuff's now. so good. It Jeff Vandermeer writes some weird books, folks. They're good. <laughs> Jeff Vandermeer, come write come write a Krakoa comic about Krakoa the Plant Man. Did I tell you that I recently uh, just I, I I'll tweet at him and he'll tweet back occasionally. And I uh, did ask him because he was asking about doing interviews, and I said, "Any chance you like X Men?" Mr. Vandermeer. <laughs> and he's Did like, he say no? He said no. That's fine. <laughs> Which is he a mistake also, on his part. He also is not returning my emails recently. So. Oh, okay. We'll I've see. only emailed him once and it was through the general contact page. Uh, so if anyone's got a better way to contact Jeff Vandermeer, hit me up. <laughs> uh, no, but the Terra Verde arc is better. Um, You have Executioner's song. Yeah. But I could see putting this a- ahead of 107, which is further adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. Okay, because we got Terra Verde at one of we got X Men Black Emma Frost at 104. Mm-hmm. Terra Verde at 105. Everything is sinister from the Kieran Gillen. That's pretty X Men at 106. A story that's only getting better as the axe <laughs> continues to fall. They just referenced it in the Gene they Gray continue one. To re- everyone, everyone's like. Sinister is sitting around saying, hey, y'all know that I've done most of this before. <laughs> right. Uh, I think further. I think further adventures might be better. Really? It's I moody. Mean, I don't know why I'm arguing. I already agreed to 124. So I, I think I would if we're if we're moving it up the list, I think I would put it at 107. 107 above further adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix above Wolverine dupe. Yes. Above executioner song. Yeah. There's a lot of great stuff happening here. You know what? I'm feeling wild tonight, Adam. <laughs> it's moved up. It was going to be 124. It is now 107. It's Marauders by Gary Duggan. Yeah. All. Folks, if you, like I said, if you were reading all of those books in just publish order, go back, check them out. You're going to be like, oh, the pandemic really was like this weird thing that made me think about these stories differently. The pandemic sure was a time when uh, when time didn't work the way it should. Nope. Uh, Do you know what else didn't work the way it should, Adam? (laughs) 
Chris Claremont's 2000s X-Men run. <laughs> yes, we're talking about the revolutions. Um, we're talking about the comics that inspired X-Men the movie. Uh, sure, it says that on the cover. I don't know if It I absolutely agree. says that on the cover with the X-Men logo from the movie or an approximation thereof. Pretty wild that they chose this arc to put that branding on. Um, especially because if you just even look at this cover, you're going to be a little confused as to what you're looking at. How many of the X-Men on this cover were in the movie? Uh, because we're talking about the Crimson Pirates arc. Uh, it is Uncanny X-Men 384 and 385, as well as X-Men 104. Uh, the cover of 384 has the following characters on it. Beast, Cable, Gambit, Storm and Jean, who were in the movie, mm-hmm. and not in the movie, but Killian of the Crimson Pirates. <laughs> Adam, we what are, do you know about Killian of the Crimson Pirates? We are Pirate? talking about those Crimson Pirates, everybody's favorite crew. and um, They've sure appeared less than 10 times. Um, Crimson Pirates make very very little sense. Uh, they are a grotesque group of pirates, space pirates who work for a intergalactic, perhaps even omniversal, uh, slaver of yeah, Tullamore Vogue. We are yes. not Tullamore Vogue. Tullamore Vaguely Vogue. racist, but in a way I can't fully describe. Yes. Uh, like a genie caricature from Aladdin. Uh, he's blue he has a curly mustache and wears a fez, not unlike the Shadow Kings. So, He's got a lot of Shadow King in him. Uh, he kidnaps the X-Men. Uh, Storm escapes. Well, no, that's that's not this the first issue. The first... Is it the first issue? Yes, it is. He kidnaps... No, the first issue is the one where... He kidnaps Adam, the... What, okay. what happens in these comics? Because <laughs> I have obviously... I read them all just a few days ago and it's running on pure vibes and the vibes are not great. In, in your total defense, this story is a mess and is really incoherent. So the story, by the way, Adam Kubert on uncanny lineal Francis, you on the X-Men stuff. Great work from both of those guys. Yep. Not their best, but great work. Wait, so did we say what we're covering here? Cause this is uncanny 384 and 385. Yeah, 385 X-Men 104. Okay. I just, I didn't know if we said that. All right. So uh, Alexi Vajin's in this. Yes. And Vajin is Vajin the one that gets, no, Vajin is not the one that gets kidnapped. Um, Vajin the, is the one who's not kidnapped. Yes. The minister of defense of Russia, I believe is kidnapped by the crimson pirates. Um, and they are, the X-Men are, I guess, interrogating, Vogue in Vajin's offices and then the pirates break him out. So this part's probably the most coherent, right? Yes. That takes a whole issue. Right now where it starts to get really weird is that now that they, the space pirates, Wait, Adam, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Yeah. yeah Uncanny yeah. X-Men, a team with beast storm cable, Jean gray, and Gambit. Mm-hmm. Do you know who is leading the Uncanny X-Men at this point? I believe it's Gambit, isn't it? Yes, Gambit is leading the Uncanny X-Men. Rogue is leading the other team of X-Men. Really strange. Um, Wild choices. Never really commented on like, hey, it's kind of dumb that Gambit's leading us, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it's very, very strange. And so once the X-Men are kidnapped by... Um, Tolomore Vogue. Tolomore Vogue. It, and the Crimson it, Pirates. You're it, talking about Killian, Kamari, Broadside. It also turns out... The Sea Dogs, Bloody that, Bess. Yeah, did we want to do the lineup? I yeah. already did. Yeah. The Sea Dogs are like these... Are they like Tusk? Do they like self-replicate? What's going on with the Sea Dogs? The Sea Dogs all... are just like little guys. <laughs> They're just little guys. They're all identical. Um so once they get kidnapped, we also find out that not only are they working for uh, Vogue, but they're also working for a group called the Goth. Oh, 
The goth are bad. Um, so we have three layers here. We have space pirates, crimson pirates. We have Tolomor Vogue. And then above that, we have, they're all working for the goth. And you would think based upon what you see in the X-Men issue that the goth are like, I don't know, Hellraiser or something. Right. Cause like they're, they're, they they're are been... putting everyone into bondage gear. Yeah. They're, they're imprisoning everybody with like leather helmets. Uh, it's really, which is creepy. what Kitty got imprisoned with in a story that again was never resolved <laughs> at the start of this era. They were a big deal. Right. So the X-Men teams get split up. Um, and then the story really starts to fall apart because Gambit's crew says that they're going on some kind of like independent mission or whatever. And then you switch over to uncanny 385 and it sounds like that team of X-Men is all possessed. And so X-Men fight X-Men, but there's no real reason why. Yeah. It's not, there's no real reason why it's weird. Uh, the X-Men do also fight in that issue. Well, that issue gets weird because the X-Men go undercover in, at a nightclub owned by the Russians, I guess. But then also there is a guy named Manacle who his powers are bondage, spiky oh, bondage. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Is he one of the goth? I don't or is know. Is he just some guy that's is around? Is he a crimson pirate? Is he a goth? Is he a Tol? Well, all the Tol. There are multiple Tolomore Vogue type people. Like they're yeah. Like- th- there's an entire race called the Slavers, Adam. Right. It's not a good race. Uh-uh. And they all look like Tolomore Vogue too, which is weird because like, how do you know which one's Tolomore Vogue if they all look exactly? He's the, the same. only one who's talking. It's, it's like the, the Mojos. Like they all look like mojo Tolomor vogue also has a not insignificant amount of mojo in him he's he's like genie meets mojo um Tolomor vogue is not my favorite x-men villain can you uh we we also have failed to properly describe the actual supervillain known as the goth can can you give it a shot yeah so the goth who's the leader of the goth um the goth who are like adam said Pinheady, Hellraiser, Bondage dudes. Um, goth of the goth. Is a sumo wrestler? <laughs> he's he's Japanese. He's wearing he's wearing some armor and he's sumo wrestler size. Yeah. Like he's comic book, I am a sumo wrestler size, so he's larger than life. It's so weird. He has a monocle. Like, what is going on when they introduce this character? It's like, there's no reason for the character to even be in the story. And it's so, so weird. Yeah, I don't, um, I don't care for anything in this story. It's bad. And it's bad in such a way that I do not fully understand it. Well, this idea of Gambit having Gambit's plan and consistently telling everybody, I, it's my plan, but then we don't really understand where his agency lies. As I said, before we went on the air, it really feels like there is a missing issue between the issue of X-Men and 385. I checked. There's not, it, it, it even tells you at the end of X-Men issue, tune into uncanny 385 for the conclusion. And it's just doesn't make any sense. Claremont is just grasping at straws here. It is so weird. You know, we talked recently about how, you know, maybe, maybe what would, what it would be like if creators kept going, mm-hmm. but I would, I would argue that Claremont may have gotten out of X-Men at the best possible time for his reputation. <laughs> <laughs> it may have been that Chris Claremont had, he continued doing X-Men in a continuous run would have ruined his own legacy instead of having like a, like a seven year break, eight year break. And then coming back and be like, well, this is just new Claremont stuff. Now guys, it's different. It's not, <laughs> it's not, the, it's not the stuff you loved. It's, it's funny you say that. Cause I did recently read um, the wildcats arc that he did with Jim Lee 
um, right Wait, after. Wait, you, you're you're talking about the unauthorized covert action team? <laughs> yes, the covert action team. Um, and it's really interesting because Claremont jumps on the book and pretty much ignores all of what Jim Lee and Brandon Choi have created so far and just brings over all of his tropes. So we get like brood slash shadow King style stuff. And uh, I don't know, like, it's just, it's always Chris just bringing his tropes with him wherever he goes. Jim Lee had to know what he was getting himself in. Oh, right. 100%. But this is another good example of that. You know, we've got, We've got these like bondage villains. There are hounds here. There are hounds, you know, some weirdly fetishized, not fetishized, but like weirdly. um, It's not not fetishized. Racist caricatures of Asian people, like all the things that we've we've seen along the line, like they, they just pop back up. It's a whole lot of unfiltered Claremont at a time when. Claremont was brought in to be the savior of the X-Men and before Bob Harris and Joe Casada said, maybe not actually. Which is a shame because, um, well, no, 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 no. here's what's a shame. Here's what's a shame. Um, take a story like end of grays, right. And we've got Chris Bocciolo doing the art and we get the, um, oh, what is their name? The Shi'ar death squad. Uh, yeah the death squad that's right like that's an example of you know like this kooky cast of characters and they're being drawn in a really fun way and i think that handled differently and with a different kind of storyline the the crimson pirates could actually have been like the shiar death commandos right like there is that capability with these goofy characters like bloody bess um and killian but like I said before, there's no need for this triplicate layer of villains. Like, why are we dealing with yes. pirates when we're now also dealing with the slavers? And then we're also dealing with the goth all at the same time. And over three issues, it just falls apart. Adam, I'm going to say something that I think I remember from these issues, but I'm not sure. Does Storm get machine gun hands at one point? Machine gun hands? That I don't remember. Okay, good. Then I may have made that up. I know there's a character that gets machine gun hands at one point. Wow. No, I ooh, I don't think so. Okay. Well, listen, now I'm looking. When did that happen? <laughs> Hold on. I, it would be in the last issue of it. I'm looking through it. I don't, I don't see the machine guns. I could have sworn storm got machine gun hands. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I'm wrong. I wonder why, why would she get machine gun hands? I know one of the Neo had machine gun hands, but I yep. think this is, I thought this was different. No, I'm not seeing any because Rogue basically just blows the goth up, like explodes him with with gambit powers. So definitely doesn't happen in 385. Maybe it happens in the X-Men issue. Man, listen, I don't want to think about these comics anymore. And also, (laughs) just to be fair and really to pass blame, I forgot Adam Kubert doesn't do uh, the uh, other one. Uh, Herman Garcia, Michael Green and. Michael Ryan and Randy Green do the art for the incomprehensible last issue. Herman Garcia, it's wild that he's so good now. I mean, the art's fine. It's That's just, fine. He has, it's just... He has nothing to work with. Like the, the story doesn't make a damn bit of sense. There's no transitions. You have no idea what's happening page to page. So let's rank this. It's not very good. I think it's going to go at the minimum in the 400s, maybe the 500s. This is worse than Revolutions. Which is at... Yeah, this is definitely in the 500s because this is worse than Muir Island Saga. Adam, Revolutions is in the 600s, I assure you. It has uh, to be. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's at 612. All right, so we're... Wow. I keep forgetting how many freaking stories we have. Here. Have you... Adam, have you forgotten that most X-Men stories are actually kind of bad? Well, you know, that's the nature of the list. Uh, This is worse than the Soul Sword trilogy at 628. This is worse than Wolverine and Viper's Wedding at 635. This is worse than War Song and End Song at 645 and 646. Um, mm, Is it worse than the 12? I don't don't know if I want to put it that That's at 659. Yeah, I don't think it's that low. Um, looking up the list and 
I mean, we're in a perfect spot because there are a lot of stories here that are um, similarly incomprehensible. And uh, we have Fabian's X-Men Forever at 652, which I like. Fabian's X-Men Forever is better. I agree. Um, He has the audacity to have the main character of the story be the robot version of ship, the ship (laughs) from X-Force. Yeah. Uh, uh, X-Men Legends 2 Rise of Apocalypse. (laughs) The the prelude comic to the game. Yes. I like the idea of a prelude comic to the game, X-Men Legends 2 Rise of Apocalypse better. It does a better job of being the comic that inspired the game than this does being the comic that inspired the movie. Yeah. This might be uh just just a, a, a like a tiny little bit more easy to understand than the Shatterstar song at 658. So I think I would give this the edge. Okay, yes, but I'm going to say it's 657. Chuck Austin's uh, Polaris and Havoc's wedding issues are better. Yeah, they do make more sense. Those are better comics than the Crimson Pirates introduction. Wow. Okay, so that's going to be our new 658, folks. Don't read those. (laughs) Now, some people are going to say that we... We dislike Chris Claremont, which I think as a creator couldn't be farther from the truth. No. Do we make fun of Chris Claremont? Absolutely. It's so fun to do. (laughs) He makes it so easy. Uh, But credit where credit is due. Sometimes the guy, uh, the guy's got stuff like in these issues that we're talking about. It's X-Men. No, it's not. No, it's It's Nightcrawler (laughs) 8 through 12. Uh, from the 2015, 2014, uh, Nightcrawler story that he did with Todd Nock. Um, Um, we've talked about this series before, right? We, we've talked about the first four issues, Mm -hmm. uh, where Nightcrawler, uh, kisses his girlfriend, sister. (laughs) We have not talked about the middle chunk where Nightcrawler has a few bad days, Mm -hmm. uh, and meets bloody bless, but we are going to talk about the end chunk, which is eight through 12, where, Bloody Bess yells at Nightcrawler to come help her. And he just does. Yeah. Teleports like halfway around the world. Um, and gosh, darn it. This works, you know, like it's so funny to be belly aching about these crimson pirates and how, how, you know, nonsensical that story was and to turn around and have bloody Bess killing in, and uh, Tullamore Vogue is back. And yet this story is clear. It's, it makes sense. It has a beginning, a middle and end. And gosh, darn it. I liked it. Each issue has a beginning, middle and end. <laughs> it's a whole thing. He's referencing Rick Remender, Uncanny X-Force for some reason. Mm-hmm. He's bringing in Bloody Bess. Uh, they accidentally, the 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 Crimson Pirates, wouldn't you know it, they did uh, find one of the Omega triplets that uh, the Shadow King was put in at the end of Uncanny X-Force. And yes. darn it, they released the Shadow King. It wouldn't be a latter Claremont story without the Shadow King. But, um, you know, the man loves a good possession story. So uh. would would <laughs> love it. For the Shadow King to have been in a good story in between his first appearance back in the 70s and, and that Vita Ayala story with yeah. Rod Reese. Anywhere in between. If there was a good Shadow King story, it would have been great. It's a it's a real real hoot when uh, Claremont just just takes him out <laughs> to, to play. But um, Claremont's written one good issue with the Shadow King ever, and he's not stopping anytime soon. The man loves his Shadow King. So loves the Shadow King. Essentially, we have Nightcrawler, Bloody Bess, um, and a a team of X-Men from Wolverine and the X-Men essentially going off to try and free, I guess, a planet or a a city's worth of omniversal children who are being enslaved by Tullamore Tullamore Vogue. So what uh, happens? What happens is the Shadow King comes out. They eventually beat the Shadow King, uh, but a couple of their students, uh, Rico, who is a Scorpion boy, mm-hmm. and Ziggy Karst, who's just a kitty pride. But, but also kind of a forge? 
Like kind of a forge too. Yeah. Kitty Pride was also kind of a forge when Claremont was riding her. Yeah. Uh, we we get a they get captured by the Crimson Pirates and they have to go rescue them and find out that oh no, the slavers have been enslaving. Yes, very actively. And um I mean that's what happens. Uh, Todd Nock uh, has a great handle on these characters. I love the cartoony style with this. And I think that Claremont takes really good advantage of the Wolverine and the X-Men setup of saying, okay, well, there's these kids at this school and we're going to use this team of the X-Men to back up Nightcrawler's supporting cast. Um, he again continues to utilize these flashbacks to interacting with Wolverine and the classic X-Men team really, really well. So we get a, a classic danger room sequence with Kitty Pride at the helm of the controls. And uh, I, it's hard not to like this. It's fun. It's, it's really fun. There's an issue uh, number 11 where Knock really kind of goes off and mm. he's just filling the page with as much as he can and it's really cool to see are you talking about the the border that starts to generate of all the little yeah, kids when he, faces when he's when it yeah it's all the kids who are paying attention to nightcrawler saving them from being enslaved while at the same time there is also an auction going on for ziggy rico and then halfway through for nightcrawler and nightcrawler immediately steals all of the money from the auction <laughs> because he's so cool uh it legitimately rules. Bloody Bess is fun. Mm -hmm. Like she's she's just a Claremont lady. Yeah, like she's a she's a swashbuckling pirate. She's having a good time. All it is. It's great that Nightcrawler gets gets to kiss her. It's so really fun. funny at the end of this story when Nightcrawler is like, yeah, she's a murderer. And but we totally boned down. And <laughs> she did. A, she did a little bit. She was not innocent of the thousands of child slaves. Right. So but, hold on. She was hot. Yes. And that's a that's a very Nightcrawler, Chris Claremont thing to do. Do we also get to check in with Nightcrawler and his uh, potentially deceased sort of like in a limbo area gr girlfriend, sister, Amanda Sefton? And do they make out in like. <laughs> that place yes that also happens here yeah it's great it's great <laughs> i don't know i don't know what else you want from a chris claremont nightcrawler story than for him to be making out with multiple ladies i i think this is a lot of fun and it's it's it's, it's a very fun book this is probably claremont's like this series is pound for pound claremont's best work in um a spell yeah but what what works about this is that he doesn't overcomplicate it. He keeps it simple. There's not a uh, preponderance of dialogue. The, the script is pretty tight actually, you know, yeah. which is weird to say about ladder Claremont and Knox art extremely legible, very clear gets the models of the characters and uh, it's fun. It's just a fun kind of silly swashbuckling adventure in a way that that last story just it didn't make any sense. I would read more of this series. I would do if it existed. Like yeah. it's, it's the one thing that tricks you is like, is Claremont actually still good? And I think the answer is, as it has always been with Chris Claremont, depends on how well you're editing him. It, absolutely. And, and you know, there is definitely a, a hand here that's that's keeping things in check, but I I don't know. I think you can find similar energy in uh, parts of what he's doing with his Gambit series right now. But you can I, find similar energy. You have an unrestrained Claremont there. That's the thing. Right. I think what you're seeing a lot in Gambit is actually, in my opinion, is his artist uh, Sid, whose last name I'm forgetting, uh, Cotian. Sid Cotian. Thank you who has a real fun cartoony style that is like really elevating a lot in it. Mm -hmm. I think Claremont may be overriding that book a bit. Well, you, you get more of the uh, free flow dialogue, you know, but uh, it's just like, why is he reference? Why in that book is he referencing storms, super ancient wizard grandma? <laughs> Cause For he like, can and he wants to and whatever. That's, that's what, 
that's what editors need to be there for is to be like, Chris, right? <laughs> Chris, my friend, stick to the story. I don't know if this is, this is additive. No, that, However, Nightcrawler is great. At 396, we have the first four issues of this, and I like this arc better than those four. I do too. I think it's a lot of fun, and uh, I enjoy it. So I think we should be moving up from there. 363, we have, and I know you don't like this position, but the Return of the Warpiece from Excalibur. Um, well, I, I like the art in that. Um, the story leaves something to be desired there are werewolves in this story that we were just talking about the werewolves do show up and yet i oddly feel great about them showing up <laughs> yeah it could have gone really when they did show up i was like really chris and then i was like oh no there's, you thought it was going to be like a hat on a hat like the goth on the slavers on the but no it's like we are also bounty hunters yeah why wouldn't we also be in this space story and it's like okay that's fair makes sense give me some werewolves uh, um, definitely don't I think, think this is as good as the issues around uncanny 350 at 346. No, and I think it's lower than that. It's not like, as cool as when Sabretooth was in charge of Weapon X at 354. Oh, that's when Sabretooth got himself a tiger. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's better. baby tiger. I hope that baby tiger's doing well. Oh. Maybe that's what Victor Lavelle is going to be writing about in Sabretooth and the Exiles. We're going to find out. Um, this is better than X Men Gold 2013. I would agree. Um, not as good as the X-Men legacy age of X aftermath right above it. Okay. All right. So this is going to be our new three fifty seven. This is our new three fifty seven, And you know what? Here's the thing. If you've not read this because it's a later day Claremont thing, check out this one. You, this one's pretty good. It's a lot of fun. Knock is killing it with the art and, uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh, well, I enjoyed talking to my friend Adam, the only person I want to talk to comic talk about <laughs> comics with. Uh, I enjoyed talking about these with you. Uh, I also enjoyed uh, doing this for Chris Manning. If you want to be like Chris again, patreon.com slash comics XF. Adam, what do you got going on? Uh, well, I guess I just went to New York Comic Con, even though as we're recording this, I haven't gone yet. So I hope that everyone understands well. that this is not a live show. <laughs> if you guys don't understand that this isn't a live show. Don't read X-Men, please. <laughs> but uh, folks can always follow me on Twitter at Arthur Stacy. I, I did decide last night that I was going to do an Inktober. Um, so I'm it's doing Arakokotober. Um, so I'm drawing the denizens of Arako. Um, I love it. I, I love the theme. It was great. Whatever. So I'm just I'm kind of doodling those out. No, I nothing. saw Cobalt never held today and I gave him a <laughs> hug or a like. I was like, oh, I'll hold you, Cobalt never held. Yeah, so that's what's going on. Uh, Zach, how about you? I'm reading books, Adam. Yes, you are. I'm reading books that aren't X-Men. Born is great, uh, isn't it? Born was great. I liked it a lot. It scratched, it scratched the itch I have about some sci-fi, but without being like, and here is the world that was built. It's mostly a story about uh, people in a dysfunctional relationship. Yeah, it turns out I don't actually care about world building. I do care about husband and wife drama. I also care about a giant bear who walks around and is like uh, Mord flies. Yeah, thank you very and much. Flies. <laughs> uh, I I care about a a squid sea anemone man who is trying to understand what it means to be human. Maybe we should start a Jeff Vandermeer pod. You know, Adam, do you want to many... pivot to just talking about the <laughs> works of Jeff Vandermeer? Because I have not read Amber Geese. I have it's not It's sitting either. over here. Yeah. Uh, you know, the City of Saints and Mad Men. I haven't yet to read it. I'm, I'm looking it's, forward it's, to it. It's because it feels to me, as I've read the first part of it, like the most traditional, like, here is sci-fi fantasy world building where a fork is actually called a Shrograbrain. <laughs> I'll get to it at some point. I um, will... I I have to take a break after Strange Bird. Yeah, but yeah. I, well, I I got to refresh my system because you already read Dead Astronaut. I have read Dead Astronauts. I love I love that. Book. Dead Astronauts is so good, uh, folks. Go read Go read Dead Astronauts by Jeff Vandermeer. If you want a book that's less plot and more vibes, that's all trippy, man. It's great. It's it's like fifty percent plot, and then halfway through the book, it says. But what if we stopped with the plot 
and instead just did weird short stories about like what it is feels like to die as a whale creature fish <laughs> repeatedly <laughs> or a second person view of a madman creating a duck that's possibly oh, his duck. father possibly oh, in his own brain wow um yeah we've we've really gone off track here so folks um, Folks, if we're going to start ranking all of Jeff Vandermeer's work, you do need to give us money at patreon.com slash comicsxf, <laughs> and we'll do it for the site. Uh, next week, Adam, yeah. maybe we'll do a New York Comic Con. Maybe we won't. No, I, I'm uh, I'm almost positive you will have a New York Comic Con super special next week, folks. So tune in. Or we won't have an episode. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> One or the we'll other. just skip. We'll just skip, and then the next time you'll hear us is Halloween. But until then, folks, this has been Battle of the Atom. We hope you survived the experience. Get it!